Good morning, church family. It's so great to see you. Uh, many of you were with us on the first, uh, on Ash Wednesday, on Wednesday, and here we are on the first Sunday of Lent. Lent is that six-week period between uh, Ash Wednesday and Easter that the church has historically focused on the suffering uh, and ultimately the death and resurrection of Jesus for us. And so in this period, we're going to be looking and studying the Apostles' Creed together, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. But let's read God's Word first from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'll find that in your bulletins on page 8. This is Paul writing to his friends who live in a city called Corinth. And let's hear what he says. Verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at that same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. So why are we doing this sermon series on the creed? Well, we just finished a pretty forward-looking vision series in February. We were looking at the future, lots of thoughts about what is to come. And so now in Lent, we're going to do something actually that the historic church has done for a couple thousand years, which is to look back at the deep roots of our faith during this season of Lent. Actually, we know from some of the earliest second and third century writings that Lent was an important time for the early Christians, that um, during, uh, when someone became a Christian and someone wanted to be baptized and become a member of the church, they would spend those six weeks of Lent um, studying, of all things, the creed, going deep into the Apostles' Creed to learn about what they believed and who they were. The reason they did that is, first of all, because the creed tells us what we believe. It was written very early on, um, and by the second century, it was already in place as the accepted and most succinct and clear articulation of what we believe. And just as an aside, you know, we don't submit to the authority of the creed. We submit to the authority of Scripture. Uh, and yet, the, the creed, as Reformed Christians often say, the creed, we believe the creed interprets Scripture rightly. And so, just like the moon does not have any light in itself, but only reflects the light of the sun. The creed doesn't have any power or authority in itself unless it is brightly reflecting the light accurately of Holy Scripture. And the church has come to believe that it does, right? And so um, in a world of confusing beliefs and contradictory ideas, the creed gives us this amazing map, an anchor, a compass, if you will, to navigate through and understand what is the foundation that we're standing on? And let me just say, too, if you're not a Christian or you're exploring what Christian faith is all about, or if you have a friend 
that is not a Christian and who is searching, Lent is a great time to engage with them, maybe bring them to church as we're studying along this, because this shows us what you believe in. It also connects us with all Christians throughout history, okay? So that's one reason why we do this, because it tells us what we believe, but it has another reason too, and that is because the creed tells us who we are. When we say the creed, we're not just saying like a a list of ideas. We're being invited to relate to a particular God that the creed explains. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The creed is inviting us into a living relationship of trust with the God who is Trinity and is inviting you to surrender your whole life. It's, it's, you know, Lent, if Lent is a season of renewal, then the creed is inviting you into renewal by reminding you, first of all, that you have a Father who made you and loves you, that you have a Savior who lived and died and rose for you, and that you have a Spirit who lives in you, who's grafted you into the church, and who gives you power and hope for life in this world. So the creed doesn't just tell us what we believe, it tells us who we are. It doesn't just inform us, it forms us. It doesn't just shape what we believe, but then it invites our beliefs to shape us. Are you all with me on that? Some of you all seem a little sleepy today. Okay? So this is why we're going to be doing the creed, and I'm real excited about it, that we get to do this throughout um, Lent and Easter. Now today, we're looking at the first two words of the creed, okay? I believe. I believe. Gosh, what does that tell us? Gosh, so much. What it tells us is that the creed is about our faith. It's about belief, right? What do we need to know what creedal faith is all about? I want to touch on three things to you today. First of all, the necessity of faith, why faith is in some ways inevitable, no matter who you are, the necessity of faith. Second, the content of our faith, what the creed gives us is our actual beliefs. And then third, the outcome of our faith. What is it meant to do? To produce in us. So the necessity of it, the content of our faith, and then the outcome of it. So first, the necessity of faith. When you read the creed, you are immediately confronted with some very powerful and even offensive truths, right? The creed is not suggesting these as opinions or ideas or suggestions. It is actually saying this is what is most true about God and ultimate reality. This is true about history. This is true about the world. Not just for some people, not just for people of certain times and cultures, but this is actually true for all people of all times and places, which frankly is offensive to a lot of folks. It was back then in the first and early centuries when it was written, and it is today. Uh, I mean, um, many folks say, with probably good reason, isn't it, isn't it arrogant to claim to have certainty about who God is and what ultimate reality is all about. Isn't it better just to, for each person to come up with their own idea of truth, for each person to come up with their own belief system? Wouldn't it be much more humble to admit that when it comes to God, when it comes to things of ultimate and absolute reality, we just don't know. We're in a sea of uncertainty, and we just sort of have to accept that we're all agnostic and that no one can claim to know what's really true. Well, you know, I, I have some sympathy for that, and I'll be the first to say that many Christians have been highly arrogant and highly self-righteous while claiming to know the, the, the absolute truth. And we must repent of that, friends. 
I mean, if at the center of the creed is a man who dies for his enemies, how much more humble should we be, right? Now, that being said, there's a problem. When you say no one can know what is absolutely true, no one can know with certainty the truth about God and about ultimate reality, you see, when you say that, you are actually making a claim about truth and about ultimate reality. You're actually saying that you know what is to be true. You're saying that you know the very thing that you just said cannot be known. And wouldn't it be fair for me to say back, how do you know that ultimate truth cannot be known? You can't prove that any more than I can prove that I believe it is, right? And so that's really a key question. And especially if you're a young person here, I just want to exhort you. One of the most important questions that you could ever wrestle with as a human being is this. Is it possible to know what is absolutely and universally true? Is it possible? That's a really important question. Let me give you an illustration. I'm thinking of an animal right now. Thinking of an animal. Can you guess it? Anyone? Yes? No. Good guess, though. Anyone else? Yes? No. Platypus. Good, good idea. Anyone else? No, you're all wrong. You're all wrong. Uh, no, the reason you cannot, you can't access my mind because you, you are cut off from my innermost world. And that's the way that a lot of people understand and approach God and ultimate reality is that, you know, any, any conjecture that we might make about God and ultimate reality is just a guess. It's just a conjecture because it's unknown. And all the religions are basically just conjectures, guesses, about what ultimate reality is, right? However, what if I revealed it to you? What if I gave you access to my most innermost thoughts and world? What if I told you that the animal that I'm thinking of is a hippogriff, an eagle horse? Come on, y'all. Mythical creature, eagle horse? Y'all are hopeless. Anyway, <laughs> um, anyway, so what Christians believe is that of course we believe that it's not possible for any human to know what is absolutely true and the true reality about God, unless that God and that ultimate truth made himself known to us. And this is what Christians dare to believe and what the creed dares to confess, that the unknown God has made himself known in and through this particular person of Jesus, revealing God to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. So, gosh, to believe that takes what? What? Faith. It takes a lot of faith. And, but here's the thing. A lot of people don't want truth that requires faith. They want truth that is verifiable, that doesn't require any trust, any faith at all, right? But here's the thing, y'all. All knowledge requires faith. Even the most hard-nosed rationalist, she cannot hold a certain view of the world unless she bases it on propositions that she cannot prove, right? Everything that we believe, everything that anyone ever believes, whether you're religious or not, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're an atheist or not, almost everything you know about the world is based on beliefs that you cannot prove, things that you have to trust in, and are based on someone else's word. Some of you have never been to California, but yet you believe in California. Why? Have you been there to verify it yourself? 
A lot of you haven't, but yet you believe it. You base it on someone else's word. You know, even your existence, even, you know, I cannot prove to you that that man in the photograph is my father. I was not there in the room when it happened, right? And yet I base it on the word of my mother. You know, if you went around demanding that every single thing that you believed had to be verified, then you would be a miserable person, right? Only by faith can any human being flourish. Every single person, whether they are agnostic, atheist, or Christian, or Muslim, or Buddhist, every person bases their vision of reality on truth that you have to ultimately take on faith. And this is why Augustine says, and I just quote that I love, I do not seek to understand in order that I believe, rather I believe in order that I may understand. We begin with faith, we begin with trust, and our life and reason flow out of it. And this is why Paul invites us to he, all the people that encounter Jesus, Cephas, the 12, the 500 brothers and sisters, all of them, he's inviting us to trust. He's inviting us to say, look, when we stand and confess the creed, we're not just saying my own personal opinion about ultimate reality. We are actually joining our voices to the whole chorus of apostles, of first witnesses, of the thousands of millions of billions of people who have met the triune God in Jesus. And we are now standing and joining our singular voice with that great chorus of voices saying, we believe in the one who has made himself known to us. See what I'm saying? That's the necessity of faith. It's inevitable. So what about the content of our faith? Because faith is more than just a feeling. It's certainly more than experience. It has actual content. And that's what the creed gives us, right? What Christians believe is actually unique among the world religions. I studied world religions for four years at UVA in the religious studies department there. Um, and what's interesting about Christianity is that it, most world religions put far more emphasis on right behavior than on right belief. So the two other great religions of the West, Judaism and Islam, um, both have very sophisticated systems of moral behavior and have much more leeway on personal beliefs. The two great religions of the East, Buddhism and Hinduism, put great emphasis on uh, religious ritual and transformative practices, and there's much less uniformity about a system of belief. Only Christianity uniquely puts all emphasis saying to be a Christian, you actually have to believe these particular things that we confess in the creed. Why? Well, here's why. Because our faith is ultimately not about behavior or a system of rules or a list of do's and don'ts. Our faith is ultimately in a particular set of events that happened in actual history. So look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me. Paul says this, I want to remind you, verse 1, of the gospel that I preached to you. And then what does he go on to say? Here's the gospel. Do these things. Follow these rules. Keep these practices. Do these prayers. No. What does he do? He goes on, verse 3 and 5, to do what? To tell a story to tell a true story about a man named Jesus who lived for us and died for us and rose for us and ascended for us and appeared to all these people. He says, look, our faith is not in our experiences and our religion and our rules and our practices and our do's and don'ts. Our faith rests in an actual set of events that God did in history that has changed us forever. This is why 
we call it good news and not good guidance or good advice or good rules. This is why when we stand and confess our faith, we don't say, I commit or I practice or I do. We say, I believe because our faith is rooted on something that we believe God did in history that has changed the course of the world forever. God did it, and we're believing in it, trusting in it. This is, this, this, this is another word for grace, friends, grace. Grace means that our faith is not in the things that we do and try really hard so that we can be saved. Our faith is in a God who acted in history in and through Jesus to save us. This is why it says in verse two, by this gospel, you are saved. Our faith is rooted in what God has accomplished for us in history through Jesus. Now, you could see, if that's the case, if our faith is so rooted in actual events in history, this is why it's so important that we get clear about the content of our faith. Lots of times you'll hear these days, um, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe it with all your heart, right? Please take no offense, but just use some common sense. Lots of people have believed things with all their hearts that have been profoundly wrong. People believe with all their hearts that the world was flat, and they were profoundly wrong. Hitler believed with all of his heart that what he was doing was for the good of Germany and humanity. He was profoundly wrong. Lots of people have believed things with all their hearts that have ended up being profoundly wrong. So sincerity of heart is just not enough. In fact, in some ways, the Bible says the opposite is true, that it doesn't matter that you believe something with all your heart as long as what you believe is true. Let me just give you an example. Okay, two guys. Imagine two guys walking out in two different frozen ponds, okay? The first guy, very confident. He believes this pond will, the ice is so thick it will hold me up, and so he just strides out upon the ice. I am very confident that this ice will hold me up. I believe it with all my heart. And then he stands upon the ice, crack, crack, plunges down into the cold waters below. The next guy walks out onto his pond, and he has no confidence at all. He has very little faith that the ice will hold him up. He is very scared. He is very timid. He is very anxious. And he's just basically moving with all of his will because he's so afraid he knows it's going to break. And he gets out into the center and he stands up and it holds. It's firm. And the lesson is that ultimately you're saved not by the strength of your faith, but by the strength of the ice, <laughs> right? It's the strength of, of what you're standing on. That's in the end this is why it says in verse one, the gospel you received in on which you've taken your stand. Make sure what you're standing on is firm. <laughs> Make sure, I mean, this is a crazy world, y'all. This is a crazy world. So much violence and contradiction and confusion. So make sure, Paul's saying, what you're standing on actually holds up to reality. Because in the end, you're not saved by the strength of your faith. Thank God. Mine is all over the place. But in the end, you're not saved by the strength of your faith. You're saved by the strength of the ice. This truth of what God has acted and done for you in history. So the creed helps us get clear on what ice it is that we're standing on, right? 
And we need that. Research shows among American Christians that we are very con- we're a very confused bunch. Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries did a big research project last year on um, what U.S. Christians, and specifically what evangelicals believe. And what they found is that among U.S. Christians, there's just a lot of confusion. The, the majority of U.S. Christians believe that Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God, that people are basically good, that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person, and that worshiping alone is just as valid as being part of a church. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that confusion. I think one of them is that 20th century American evangelicalism has done a fantastic job of making Christianity into a big old fun, entertaining event. You know, we gotta have fun. It's gotta be awesome. It's gotta be life-changing every week, right? When our kids come home from youth group, we say, was it fun? Not, did it sanctify you? Did it make you more like Jesus in the image of knowledge of the creator? No, of course not. <laughs> of course not, we don't say that. Now, I, want, I want you to understand, I love fun. I'm very silly. I love jokes, you know. I, but, but here's the thing, y'all. I gotta put this to you. We're not here to have fun. We're here to be formed. We're here to be deeply formed in the deep soil of God's word so that we actually have a foundation to stand on in the cold ice out there so we don't plunge through and die. That's why we're here. And so we're going to have fun. We're going to be silly. We're going to do handstand contests and all that. I love that. But in the end, we want our kids, our little ones to know. We want our students to know. We want everybody to know that we do what we do and we believe what we believe for a reason. That it's not true because it's exciting. It's exciting because it's true. And there's a big difference. You with me? So, so that's the content of our faith. Okay, one last thing, though. The outcome of our faith. What is the creed supposed to do? What outcome is it supposed to create? What kind of people is it supposed to produce? Uh, 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 know-it-all, look-down-your-nose, self-righteous Christians, little nerdy theologians. Is that what it's supposed to produce? Lord, No. It's supposed to produce changed people, people who are more like the one that they're confessing. The creed is not just inviting us into a new set of ideas. Like I said in the beginning, it's inviting us into a new relationship with the God that we confess. Paul says in verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace is not without effect. Paul was transformed, and he wasn't changed by a new set of ideas. He was changed by an encounter with a new person, Jesus, and the God that he revealed. That's what turned his life upside down. You know, in the early church, I mentioned this earlier, I've read some early second and third century baptismal rites, and they're very exciting. And this is what would happen. You know, the converts would prepare all through Lent, uh, and then they didn't celebrate Christmas Eve. They celebrated Easter Eve. So they would stay up all night on Easter praying. And then as soon as dawn broke on Easter morning, the converts would be led out to a pool and they would remove their clothing uh, and they would be asked a question. Do you believe in God the Father? I believe, they would say. And they would get dunked into the water. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. Third day he rose again. I believe, they said, plunged into the water. Do you believe in God, the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, and the church, and the communion of saints, and the resurrection of the dead? I believe, they said, and plunged. And sometimes they would throw in, do you renounce evil and spit on him? Yeah, I love that. They, you know, they say, I believe. And, then, and then, then they would rise up and be anointed with oil and be given white robes. 
and brought into the congregation and receive the Lord's Supper for the first time. So do you see, for, the, for these early Christians, this wasn't just a boring recitation of my beliefs, theology, right? No, it, it was dangerous. It was rebellious. It was saying to Caesar, Caesar is not Lord. The state is not Lord. The Trinity, I pledge allegiance to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. I pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ, and I renounce all the false lords and stories of the world. It was a, an act of rebellion and allegiance, saying, I will no longer live by that old story, and I will now live by the story in which Jesus is king. I dare you to do that. Have you done that? When you stand up and confess your faith, is that what you're doing? Has it, has it changed you? Are you letting the truths of this, of, of, of this creed transform your life so that you are saying, you know what, I'm no longer gonna live by the story of the world. I'm no longer gonna live the beauty story. I'm no longer gonna live the, the, the American dream story that just tells me that my goal in life is just to accumulate wealth and to have well-balanced 2.5 children and to retire well. You know, I'm no longer gonna, gonna live this story that all my life I've been told, this story of Western individualism. I'm no longer gonna live this story and instead I am now going to surrender to a new king. I pledge allegiance to the Trinity and I surrender my life to him. Sarah and I have a friend um, named Amy and Travis and Travis was a physician. They were missionaries. They lived in Uganda. Uh, and Travis was a physician. And um, about seven years ago, Travis contracted cancer. And he fought it hard for seven years. And last week, he died at the age of 43. Three kids. And Sarah went to the funeral down in North Carolina last Saturday. And Travis wrote a letter that he wanted printed on the back of the bulletin of his own funeral service. And this is what it, it says. It says, dearest friends, we wait patiently for the Lord, always expectant, always seeing his goodness, always thankful. He is coming to make all things new. Until then, we take courage to love each other, and listen to this, bet our life that Jesus is here with us. There is so much more to this creation that we can see now. So we move forward for his name's sake, for the joy of this life here in great expectation of what is coming. Press on, my dear friends, it's worth it. My deepest love, Travis. Now, are those the words of a man with good theology? Yeah, but more than that, they are the words of a man who pledged his allegiance to a different story, to a different king and who let that allegiance completely change his life, change the way that he approaches money, change the way he approaches ambition, change the way he approaches career, change the way that he approached what, prioritized he made, what priorities he made in his family. Why else would someone give up a comfortable life in suburban North Carolina and move to be a physician in the villages of Uganda? Because they had pledged themselves to a different Lord, because they had a different hope, because his life was now standing on a different slab of ice. And this is what we're being invited to into when we say the creed. Not just new ideas, not just beliefs, but a new transformed life. 
one in which we are going to let this God, this triune God, now shape our story. So friends, as, as we prepare to come to this table, and uh, I just want to encourage you that you're being invited to put your faith on the strong foundation of the good news of the gospel, what God has done for you in Jesus. And here's the good news. It, it, remember what I said, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you, it's the strength of the ice. As Spurgeon said, it's not thy hold on Christ that saves you, it's Christ's hold on you. And so the invitation is to come to this table, even if your faith is teensy-weensy, even if it's a little mustard seed, because in the end, that's what, the one that saves you is not, is not your own religious faith, but it's this one that we celebrate here who has lived for us and died for us and risen for us and has ascended for us and is reigning for us and interceding for us and who comes again for us. This is the one in whom our faith resides and on whom we now stand. So let's stand together. Let's do that now. Let's stand together and confess our faith in the God who has made himself known to us. Dear Christian, what is it that you believe? We say together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, we do thank you that today uh, we stand not just on our own, but we stand with a whole global communion of saints both uh, living and dead, past and present, multicultural, multiglobal, multilingual, multiracial, that we are part of this historic church that all together say we trust in the one who has loved us and given himself for us. We celebrate that now at this table in Jesus' name. Amen.